This month, the University of Pennsylvania's museum announced that they will be removing their 19th century skull collection, which includes crania of enslaved people. Many were perplexed that such a thing existed on exhibition in the year 2020. It's the latest in a series of museum stories that are surfacing as the public starts to scrutinize museums, colleges, and other institutions for their connections to slavery, anti-Blackness, and colonialism. I'm Harag Bartanian, the host of the Hyperallergic Podcast. This episode, I'm joined by news editor Jasmine Weber and reporter Hakeem Bashara to talk about the news out of the Penn Museum. So recently in Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania has seen a huge effort on behalf of its students, some of its faculty and its surrounding community to divest the university from policing. Some of those ways include not calling the police to campus, changing the way that the university interacts with its surrounding Philly community. And one of the most recent ways that Hakeem Bashara, our staff reporter, has been covering is the creation of a student group called Police Free Pen, which is involved in these modes of abolition and has also taken up the mantle of abolishing the Morton Collection at the museum. And so the Morton Collection is held at the Penn Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, which includes the skulls of enslaved people. And so the university and the museum has recently taken a new stance on the Morton Collection and how they'll use it to interact with students and researchers at the university. So Hakeem, if you want to tell us a little bit about that and the demands on behalf of PFP, Police Free Penn. About two weeks ago, the Penn Museum announced that it's going to be removing a part of the modern collection that was on display in a classroom at the basement of the museum to permanent storage. They also announced that they're going to work towards repatriation and reburial of the items, although they reserved that the issue is complicated. And in an interview with the student's newspaper at UPenn, the museum's director also said that the collection will still be accessible to research. That has angered local activists who claim that this museum collection should be entirely and completely abolished. Did you speak to the university? Did they have any comment on this issue? Because it does seem like it's uh, not exactly what PFP was asking for. Yes, we approached uh, uh, the museum and the university several times and they have not responded to our inquiries, unfortunately. So. One of the issues that PFP has taken up with the collection is the fact that the museum has, yes, taken these skulls off of view and they're considering means through which they can repatriate these skulls. One thing that the museum said publicly is that because these skulls were unethically sourced, they were taken from enslaved people that by the very nature of enslavement could never have given consent to a scientist to study them. And the scientist specifically, Morton, took these skulls as a part of his development of a race science to prove the supposed inferiority of African people. So Samuel George Morton, for whom the collection is named, he was a scientist in the 19th century and studied at UPenn. 
one thing that PFP seems to really be taking a stance on, which I think is really unique and interesting, is that not only do they want the abolition of the collection, but they would like to see all of the data that has been extracted from studying these skulls no longer be used, no longer be available to researchers. That's such an interesting twist that I'd never heard before. Is that something you've heard before, Jasmine? I I don't know of an example like that. I haven't heard of any examples like this, but I think it actually is really important. It really made me think about the way that racist scientific practices have formed so many of the scientific studies that are still going on today. Even when you go to the doctor, when they take your creatinine levels, um, they actually factor in your race. And that's based off of race science, similar to that that was developed from the Morton Collection, that assumed that different races, particularly Black people, had poor health naturally. And this is a, this is a different extension of that in the sense that they were trying to prove that Black people were physically inferior, intellectually inferior. But I think that this is a really dramatic but necessary stance on decolonizing education and decolonizing science. If the concept of decolonizing the museum was ever vague or seemed too academic for people, this story gives a really stark example how uh, these colonial holdings can be real and painful for, for people. And we're talking just for context, Samuel Morden is a 19th century so-called physician who was derided and discredited by even uh, Charles Darwin himself. And um, a group of students from UPenn held a symposium last year, and they created a group called Pen and Slavery Project, and they had a, an extensive study into the colonial roots and ties of the museum with the enslavers. So they found other examples in which the university's medical school has used enslaved people's body parts without consent of their descendants. And they also found that many of the school's trustees and even its first provost, William Smith, were slaveholders. So this is a lot larger than just the Morton collection. And critics of the recent decision that the museum took, to be clear, PFP, Police Free Pen, had a list of demands including removing the uh, collection to storage and removing it from the website, which a museum has done. But they have a lot more other uh, demands that the museum has not even responded to. For example, they asked for a full-time position that would be dedicated to repatriation and reburial of the body parts. They also asked for an advisory board that would include members of uh, the affected communities. They demanded an apology for the museum for these communities and the harm that was caused to them by holding this collection. And they also acknowledged that the issue of repatriation might be complicated indeed, but that's not a reason not to uh, go into this process. And some of the activists have suggested that in case contact cannot be made with descendants of uh, the people whose cranium was taken that those items should be given to spiritual communities of descendants, and they would decide how to rebury or honor these objects. 
So, you know, come to think of it, it was just occurred to me, there is actually probably historical precedent for this, which was in the Nazi medical experiments. Because in the concentration camps, there were a number of German physicians that conducted experiments on the prisoners without their permission. And, you know, if all you have to do is search the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and they have a page about this that also mentions that considering, so I'm going to read straight from their website for the, in the Holocaust Encyclopedia, which reads, Considering the inhumane conditions, lack of consent, and questionable research standards, modern scientists overwhelmingly reject the use of results from experiments in the camps. So just to let people know that this is not, you know, as new, um, I think it did even to me feel like very new, but it, it just a reminder, this is part of a bigger conversation that has been going on that I think it's really important to acknowledge. That's a great point. So now... Any indication, Hakeem, of like the museum evolving on this issue any more than it already has? Well, the only uh, indication you can find is on the level of statements on their website. For example, they released in the wake of the Back Lives uh, Matter protests, they released a statement acknowledging that, quote, this museum was built on colonialism and racist narratives. They also amended the website of the Morton Collection to say that the website is, quote, not a memorial loading Morden or his scholarship, but on the same page, they call the collection an exceptional historic resource. So there's a, there's a perplexing case here of acknowledging the racist and colonial history and legacy of the museum, but somehow feeling obliged to maintain it and perpetuate it. Well, I think it's also a good reminder how implicated higher education institutions are into the status quo of society at the time. So, you know, in this case, we see universities that were not just, you know, they weren't challenging slavery or anything. They were very much part of, you know, the system and benefiting from them. And I think that's also a good reminder that, you know, sometimes academia, you know, just perpetuates the same kind of societal injustices um, in just a different form. So I think this is going to be a big issue going forward. People are going to really be thinking about because once we start peeling the layers of this onion, it's really, it really is going to unlikely places that I think some people years ago would not have imagined. And I think it's actually very healthy. But I, I could see why some people can sometimes hesitate around these issues. I think especially when we consider the contemporary placement of so many of these institutions, a place like the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University and Yale University, which are all like some of the oldest institutions, like higher education institutions in the U.S. that have been around for centuries, are now smack in the middle of communities with predominantly black and brown populations. And I think that student groups like PFP are demanding that these institutions stop gentrifying, stop exploiting, stop expanding outside of their existing realm because of the ways that it can be so harmful for those institutions. A place like Columbia University being situated in an area that is considered Harlem, but the university very much brands itself as being separate from Harlem. Similar to with the University of Pennsylvania, they're located in Philadelphia, and so much of PFP's demands are interact with the local communities, fund public education in the local community, and actually interface with the Black 
and Latinx people that are living as our neighbors, who rather than treat them as neighbors and invest in them and treat them with the respect that they deserve as members of your community, instead they're being displaced, they're being pushed out, and they're being ignored when they're speaking up about harm that the university is doing. So I think that watching it develop in such in such rapid pace. Obviously, this conversation of universities gentrifying their surrounding neighborhoods and pushing out the minority communities that live as their neighbors has been going on for many, many decades. But I think that this renewed campaign with PFP has has been really powerful. I think it's also what's really interesting for me is I think, you know, these institutions, as well as museums, because I think we can place them all together, obviously, is like, you know, for years, they've been wondering why can, we cannot attract more minority communities or as specifically Black and Latinx communities and Indigenous communities. And I think, you know, these things, whether people want to accept it or not, really do have an influence of whether you're going to go to an institution where you see these little things that really are cumulative, right? And you see the fact that like, you know, if, you're, if your dorm is named after a slave owner, I mean, I can't, I have to admit, I don't think I, w- I would be comfortable or other people like, you know, when you realize that, that's not really a thing we should be celebrating. And I think for so long, these institutions have really essentially would like, w- uh, you know, whitewashed the legacies of very wealthy people that benefited from these uh, heinous, you know, this heinous inequality. And, you know, I think it's just, I think really when these changes happen, and this is something that I just want to sort of say as a big picture thing, I think we are going to see a real change, you know, when people don't have to go to a museum and see the skulls of people who had no decision to participate. And the fact that they are being preserved, you know, in a way that still objectifies them. I actually see the logic of returning them to communities that will take care of them. And you know, I think this is a much bigger question, too, because one issue that I, I really was clarified for me was at the National Museum of Beirut, when I was in Lebanon last year, there's one part of the exhibition in the basement where there is actually the skeleton of a body, um, a skeleton of a human being from, I believe, it was about 1500 years ago. And there is a sign that indicates there should not be photography. The space is very respectful, even solemn. You have to go through a door. So it's not like it's sort of on display in the same way. But you walk in and you see this and you can experience it without having to take a photograph or a selfie or anything like that. And those bodies were being given the solemn respect they deserved. And I think that is something I think about a lot, especially in terms of Egyptian mummies. Because it does make me wonder why they are displayed in this kind of way where we're looking at them as as these objectified objects. And I think it's one thing to display something like a coffin or sarcophagus, but to actually display in human remains is something I think we should talk about more and more. Because I don't think it's respectful. Those people had no consent. I think it's, it's one thing in a very scientific setting where people can study this for different reasons. Potentially, there could be a possibility to do that. But the way it's sort of like displayed for the public and objectified, it does make me wonder if we're reinforcing those same things. I mean, nobody mummified their body in the ancient Egypt so that it could be on display 3,000 years later in, in a museum for people to gawk at. Right. And it does it does tell me that these conversations are going to go on for a while. And, you know, 
I don't know whether it will be a negative if mummies go off display. I, I don't know whether I'm learning anything that they couldn't just do in the form of, of an actual model and seeing the actual you know, mummy remains. I'm not so sure how much that is contributing to uh, the public's knowledge of these uh, remnants of other civilizations. I think that Jake Nussbaum, one of the people I interviewed for the article, he's a, an anthropology PhD student at UPenn. He put it best when he said that every day the museum keeps holding on to this collection is every day that they claim ownership over the bodies of people's ancestors. Wow, that's a powerful statement. So on that note... I want to thank you both, Jasmine and Hakeem. We are trying to do these shorter podcasts for people because there are so many topics we have to grapple with and we know people's time is also limited and we want to get these out as quickly as possible. So thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Hakeem. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you so much. The song this episode is an instrumental version of Begin Again by Kill the Alarm. Check them out. I'm Harag Bartanyan the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and stay safe.